to Dallas by Robert P. Fitton. Return to Dallas, Chapter 18. Jackson Square, New Orleans, Louisiana. Monday, August 12, 1963. 9.25 p.m. Patch and Sherry passed yet another statue, this one of Andrew Jackson. The envelope note in the post office box this morning simply stated they were to meet Eladio Valley at the edge of Jackson Square near Chartres Street at 9.30 p.m. Patch stopped near the trim shrubbery and the gardenias. He snapped a gardenia stem and lifted the sweet-scented white flower to her nose. Then he placed it in her hair. She smiled and kissed him. They'll get you for illegally picking flowers, Patch. That's the least of my problems, sweetness. She adjusted the flower. Problems like $100 bills? A bald man with a Polaroid camera quickly approached. He lifted his camera and they both smiled. How much? asked Patch. One dollar, sir. Patch removed a dollar from his pocket and handed it to the man. The man applied a chemical to the surface of the black and white photo. You need to make sure that fixer dries. Hey, that's pretty good, said Patch. Thank you. Wow, even got the gardenia. Patch grinned and turned under the streetlight. About a hundred feet away down Charter Street, Devalier and David Ferry spoke near a storefront. How does Devalier know Ferry? I'm beginning to think they're all connected, Patch, she said once again, holding his hand. I wish I had the amplifier. Ferry extended his hands as if he were pleading with Devalier. Strange. A lanky man with slick, reddish-brown hair crossed his legs. In his late 30s or early 40s, he wore an aqua shirt and repeatedly watched Ferry and Devalley. He stood and tucked in his shirt. Then he took a paper bag off the bench before he walked into the square. As he passed several dozen yards away, Patch noticed something in his ear. He was listening to their conversation, said Patch as the man faded into the night. Who the hell is he? Another mystery man. Something isn't right here. Ferry trundled into the darkness somewhere down Chartres Street. Patch squeezed her hand and moved toward the little man with dark hair and a high forehead. Mr. Duvalli. He made a detailed check of the park and then looked down Chartres Street. I'm here to tell you that someone will be meeting you here in the next few days. I have not been told what they want you to do. I've been told that you should continue to check your post office box daily. It is a top priority. I understand. But why not just send the information to the box? That's all I've been told. Again, he looked around the square. Did you see a man about six feet tall? Reddish auburn hair? A few minutes ago, we saw a man of that description on the bench behind the trash bin over there, said Sherry. Patch pointed across the square. I knew that son of a bitch was following me. Who is he? He's a fucking intelligence operative. He hid behind the bin, damn it. You ought to mind his own goddamn business. He hit Patch's arm. Call me. Then he jogged down the street and ran at a faster clip. Just like the intelligence operative, he blended into the night. Nervous, Patch? Maybe. You want to talk? I could use a good walk and then relax in one of those bars. I could use a good drink, not tequila, though. Patch grinned as they started down Charter Street. That operative has them under surveillance. 
I wonder if the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. I think you're a secret agent, Patch, she said sarcastically. Bond, Patch Bond. She laughed and clung on his shoulder as they moved down Chartres Street to the dimmer light where Ferry had been speaking with Duvalli. If they keep paying me like they've been paying me, I'll buy a Bentley, one for you and one for me. He looked toward the corner. What would Ferry want with Duvalli? Obviously, they're working on something together. Castro and Cuba. This whole place is crawling with people who want to rip out Castro's heart. Right, they're all fanatical. Napoleon House Bar, she said, pointing at the bar's sign. One bar's as good as the next. When this is over, she said as she put her arms around his shoulders and kissed him, I want you to come back to Spokane with me. He adjusted the gardenia in her brown hair. I fear I'll be hiding from the intelligence agencies for the rest of my life. There are ways to hide, Patch, she said as they walked into the crowded bar. Photos of patrons lined the plaster walls and a dense smoke hung over the tables. There's no hiding, Sherry. I need to know who did this to my memory. But if I start asking questions, I invite trouble. She led him toward the bar and then abruptly pushed him back. What are you doing? Oswald. Oswald is in here? She pulled him back into the doorway. Oswald is in here with David Ferry. Ferry? guess he likes bars. He doesn't seem to be a loner. She pointed across the tables. The slender Oswald in a light jersey was engaged in some kind of debate with a small student cadre. Ferry, wearing a touring cap and a short sleeve shirt, leaned back, taking down a tall drink. His arm looped around one of the young male students. Once outside, Patch faced her. Aside from the fact Ferry likes young guys, how the hell does Oswald know Ferry? Maybe he just met Ferry and the students in the bar. Too many damn people operating in concentric circles. She looked at him. Everyone knows just a portion of the big picture. Something isn't right here. Bannister and Ferry, Roselli and his friends, Eladio Valley running after an intelligence operative. Wish there was a real way to get out of this patch, she said as they backtracked toward Canal Street. I'm just going to do what I'm told. Go to the post office box in the morning and find out what the top priority is. What do you think it is? The Cuban thing. They're up to their elbows in this Cuban thing. I'm getting rid of Castro. August 12, 1963. Audio recording, three and a half inch reel. This is Lemon. There's a connection between Lee Oswald and David Ferry. He may even be associated with Guy Bannister and organized crime. We saw Ferry and Oswald talking with students in a bar called the Napoleon House Bar. We met with Eladio Diwali, whom we saw speaking with Ferry earlier. Also, a man about six feet tall was watching both Ferry and Diwali. He took off through Jackson Square, and Diwali followed him. Diwali said the man was an intelligence operative. Lemon out. Return to Dallas, Chapter 19. Charlemagne Hotel, New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday, August 16th, 1963, 8.55 a.m. The brass elevator doors closed. Patch pinched the bridge of his nose as they descended. Okay, do you want to hear about my dream last night? The long car on the prairie, she asked. 
No, this wasn't a bad dream. I was working at a table in a park. Tourists all around. And behind me there was a box-like red brick building. Where? Have you been there before? Yeah, I feel as if I worked there in the park at a table. Like a vendor. Any road signs or city signs? She asked, leaning toward him. No. Green grass and a huge tower beyond the overpasses. Railroad tracks. People were mulling around, you know, like when you go to a national monument. You got me on that one, Patchy. How would that upset the military to wipe memories out of your head? Wait, the guy that was in that facility, you know, when they wiped my mind? He was watching me in the park. He was in a trench coat and looking for my help. That's all I remember. She put her hand on his wrist. Patch, this is coming out bit by bit. I do think you're going to get to the bottom of this. The portable TV at the main desk showed a meeting between President Kennedy and the new ambassador to South Vietnam. Jerry slowed down on the marble floor. They stopped in front of the portable TV. Newly appointed ambassador to Vietnam, former vice presidential candidate with Richard Nixon in 1960, Henry Cabot Lodge speaks with President Kennedy in the Oval Office yesterday. High on the agenda is addressing the communist threat in Vietnam. Lodge speaks fluent French and served two tours of duty during World War II. Kennedy is a reasonable man, said Patch. But the Chinese and Russians aren't. On the newspaper's front page, the vice president sat atop a horse at his Texas ranch. In the background, his wife and daughter admired the horse with the smiling former director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. Excuse me, Mr. Kincaid, shouted the clerk with a flat brown toupee. He adjusted his dark suspenders and rounded the corner with an envelope in his hand. This correspondence arrived for you during the night. Patch handed him a dollar and took the white sealed envelope with his name on it. Who left it? Sir, apparently it was left during the night. Around 3 a.m. I can check with the clerk when he comes back this afternoon. I appreciate it. Clerk nodded and returned to the front desk. Patch put his hand behind Sherry's back and moved past the tall green plants into the sitting room near the outside windows. For a few seconds, he stared at the envelope. The penmanship lacked clarity, and the envelope looked used. He tore open the edge and pulled out a sheet of paper with the Charlemagne header in green letters up top and a logo of ornate street lamps. The inside writing matched the outside of the envelope. Dear Lemon, you are walking into something you best walk away from. I don't know you and have nothing to gain by telling you the people you are dealing with only care about what they want to accomplish. Sincerely, Pilatus. Pilatus? Sounds like a Roman emperor, Pilatus Maximus. Pat stroked his chin. He's the man on the bench last night. How do you know? I don't. Just a feeling. Lafayette Square Post Office Annex New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday, August 16th, 1963, 9.35 a.m. After four days, a new manila envelope appeared in the post office box. Patch quickly opened it at the tables along the other boxes. A slip of yellow type paper was tucked between $50 bills. 
Patch did not count the money. Lee Oswald will be handing out his communist pamphlets again. Station yourself at the International Trade Mart in New Orleans. Clay Shaw, a paid CIA contract source, is associated with the Trade Mart and is helping Oswald accomplish his goal. Oswald was arrested after the last incident and was debriefed by FBI SAC Quigley and SAC DeBreeze. DeBreeze and Oswald have met on many occasions at the Habana Bar. Oswald frequences the Customs House building specifically with DeBreeze and David Smith and Wendell Roach of the Immigration Service. They all know each other. After the arrest, Oswald went on a New Orleans radio station and debated Bringier and the Exiles as a Marxist. Urgent. Listen to Oswald on WDSUAM after 6 p.m. August 17th. Warning. FBI informant Orville Alcoin is also filming Oswald. FBI photographers will photograph the incident. Stay clear of Alcoin and the FBI. Attached is a New Orleans mugshot of Oswald after the street incident. Why is he meeting with the FBI? Oswald's playing both sides, Sherry, and working with a CIA guy, and I don't know why. With Pilatus watching him, and us, Patch twisted his lips and shrugged his shoulders. I would say Oswald is gathering information on people and telling the FBI agents. It would appear that way. How is the FBI involved in this? asked Patch in a loud voice. Vaselli did say to stay away from the intelligence people. And Oswald's obviously been trying to make people think he's a communist. Gets arrested and then goes on the radio as a Marxist. Any sign of Pilatus Maximus? She asked. No, I would say that man is a professional. We may never see him again. The New Orleans Trademark said Patch, looking at another 4x6 black and white photo of the ruddy gray-haired Shaw. I don't know where the trademark is. We'll have to check the map. She shielded her hand above her eyes as she looked around the park. Patch nodded as he too made sure no one lurked around her red impala parked across the street. Let's get some breakfast and then watch the masquerading Mr. Oswald at the trademark. International Trademark Building, New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday, August 16, 1963, noon. As Patch backed the Impala into the parking space, Lee Oswald, in a short-sleeved white shirt and dark slacks, engaged in a heated conversation with a Cuban. They stood outside the open doors of a triangular tan building with green reflective windows tapering out in both directions. A row of international flags lined the rooftop. Oswald deposited a few dollars in the man's open hand. Looks like he's got a few people to help hand out those flyers, said Sherry. One of those men in the background was Carlos Brignier. Sherry clicked the camera button and photographed the dark-haired man. He shook his head and threw a bunch of the flyers into a nearby trash barrel as he abandoned the effort. Oswald returned outside and, with another man, passed out more flyers at the street corner. Passerby took the flyers but seemed confused by the content. Sherry snapped another photo of Oswald's associate, a slender guy in his early twenties with black hair and an olive complexion. 
Patch thought it odd that someone from a TV station filmed Oswald and his people down the street. He's sure getting a lot of publicity. Some distance away from the building, Clay Shaw, in a light suit, meandered down the sidewalk. Shaw, Sherry, quick, take his picture. Where? Over there. He's down the sidewalk. I see him. She pressed the shutter twice. Got him. Shaw entered the building around 50 yards down the sidewalk. Another player in the drama. How much money did they send this time, Patch? 1500 bucks. We'll put it in the bank with the rest of it. Pilatus was right. These people have their own purposes. I'm just not so sure what that purpose is, but it's damned important, and I don't think we can just walk away. The complete audiobook of Return to Dallas is available at audible.com.